This week on the Holy Bold Podcast, we discuss a new theology word. Now, well, the word itself isn't really new, but it might be new to you. And that word is hamartiology. We're going to ask the question, what is sin? So thank you very much for tuning in to the Holy Bold Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Very glad that you are uh, listening, watching, however you've tuned in. My name is TJ Lucason. I am the host of the Holy Bold Podcast. So, uh, again, thank you for tuning in. This week, I'm uh, very excited. This is actually uh, a topic that I've been waiting to get to for a little while. Um, It was spawned from a social media debate which I, I love having social media debates. If you are friends with me uh, or follow me on any uh, social media platforms, you probably have noticed uh, various social media conversations that I've gotten into. Um, honestly, I'll say I think social media uh, debates, conversations are, or at least can be, obviously sometimes they are not, but they can be very edifying and can have good effects. And I, I, I'll, I'll be real with you. Um, I've heard many pastors or just various Christians kind of demonize the whole idea of having serious debate or conversation on social media. And they kind of paint with a broad brush sometimes and just talk about, you know, and they, they assert that it is just always fruitless. And that has just not been my experience. Of course, like you still need to act like a Christian and be a Christian when you debate or talk with people online. Uh, But I would say that the social media, that is the new public square. Like there's no place, you know, Paul in Acts uh, 18 could go to the Areopagus and and preach publicly to people. Now, I do that. Like, I, I go preach publicly. That's a thing that I do occasionally. But I will say that the amount of actual dialogue and discussion that happens there, um, I don't think is quite the same as it was in the day of Paul or the day of Jesus. Like, people would actually pause and listen and speak to you uh, back then. And that's, I'll be honest, just not quite as common these days. But... Uh, you know, I can say something online and people will actually stop and talk to me. Yesterday, I had uh, a many tweet discussion back and forth with a couple guys. Uh, you know, it's Pride Month. And so I had posted and just talked about how um, Christians like committed, faithful Christians ought to be willing and able to to say uh, about homosexuality, not not simply that it's just not God's best plan for your life. You know, that tends to be the tack that, that most uh, Christians today take where they, you know, they want to be gentle and gentleness is good. But in their their desire for gentleness, many Christians today essentially just just speak about homosexuality as if the only problem with it is simply that it's just not God's best plan for someone's life. You know, it, it might be God's backup plan or something, but it's not God's best plan for your life. And like, I think that's stupid and silly. And I think that Christians must be able to say that uh, homosexuality is a disgusting abomination. That's 
that's how scripture speaks about it. It is unnatural. It is not how God created us. It is against God's creation. It is unnatural. Uh, it is idolatry. It is an abomination. And so I said that on Twitter and I, I, my, I was speaking to Christians and saying, Christians, this is how, you know, if we want to reflect the language of scripture about the topic of homosexuality, which is a big topic in the month of June, particularly, then we should be able to say this. And it's not like should be able to. I don't there. I'm not talking about like it should be within our American rights. I just mean, no, Christians should be bold enough to say that. And if we're not, then we're not, we are not speaking the way that God speaks and the way that scripture speaks about this topic. And therefore, if you are unwilling to do that, you are falling short of the command that God has given you. And so Christians, you should do that. And then of course I had a couple, uh, atheists, uh, come and speak to me on my Twitter thread. Uh, it was just one tweet, but they, then they came and spoke to me, you know, directly, uh, through Twitter. And I had, you know, we probably exchanged 25 or 30 tweets just going back and forth. Um, and I just was able to very succinctly and directly tell them, look, the Christian worldview is true. Uh, the Christian worldview is right. What God says about sexuality is right. And I don't know if they had ever heard that before, you know, but they need to be told and then called to repentance. And so I think social media debates are useful. I think that they are a very direct way that you can speak truth right at a person, you know, and that is increasingly difficult, especially, you know, in our cultural climate right now, where if you say some of those things in your workplace, you know, you might get fired or even there are some people who say things like that on social media and then they get fired from their workplace. And like I am in a situation right now where that's just essentially uh, impossible. Like I will not get fired from the job that I have for speaking biblical truth because I can, I happen to work in a place where they affirm biblical truth. And so it's like sick. I, I have complete freedom to say these things. And so I, uh, I am a big fan of, of boldly and, and, uh, you know, almost, I would imagine a lot of people would think of the way that I speak on social media as brash, um, but I think that that is what our culture needs right now is it needs a straightforward, uh, a nearly harsh presentation of uh, Christian truth and moral truth. Um, and, and there's this I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but there's this concept that has been come up with by somebody. I'm guessing the guy's last name was Overton because it's called the Overton window. And essentially, it is a term meant to describe the the breadth of of width or the you know the breadth of uh, public opinion that you can state publicly without being sort of ostracized from polite society. So the Overton window uh, would would signify those things that you can say uh, in polite society without being ostracized. And then those things that fall outside of the Overton window are the things that you cannot say. And the only way to broaden the Overton window, the, you know, the only way for it to become normal for us to be able to say things like homosexuality is an abomination. The only way for that to become, uh, you know, to be drawn into the Overton window is actually to broaden the Overton window. And the way that you broaden the Overton window 
is by simply saying those things, saying them publicly, saying them to people who disagree with you about those things, because uh, the way that it works just kind of sociologically is that people get used to hearing certain things like it was not normal 20 years ago. Uh, to to you know accept transgenderism on a cultural a wide cultural scale that was not normal it was seen as absurd and odd and and unnatural uh, but what happened well the the people who are in favor of transgenderism said it so much and so often that it kind of became normal and now you know uh, a the president can can be in favor of transgender uh, ideology and be elected and and not be ostracized because it has been drawn into the Overton window by repetition. And that is what we need to do with Christian morality. We need to repeat it so loudly and so often that it, it becomes uh, even if everyone doesn't agree with it. You know, because the Overton window doesn't mean that everybody agrees with every idea that is inside of the window. But what it means is that those ideas are seen as at least culturally normal and acceptable. And I don't have the illusion that Christian morality will ever be, you know, 100% acceptable to our culture. But we ought to strive to make it uh, known and uh, at least, um, you know, we, we want it to be at the point just for the good of our progeny, our children and our children's children. We want it to be such that they can say Christian things without being ostracized, without being sent to the gulag. So all that to say... I am a fan of uh, social media debate as long as you conduct yourself as a Christian. Um, and so recently I got into a little bit of a social media debate with a guy on Twitter. And um, I can't even remember now what the like what the initial debate was about. It had something to do with um, somebody who was kind of questioning the apostolic uh, authority of the Apostle Paul. And so. That's kind of where the debate started, and and as we um, move forward, um, he the the topic of sin came up, and and I was just um, pointing out to this guy uh, that sin, uh, or that there are certain things that the Apostle Paul refers to as sinful and as out of bounds, and this guy was sort of uh, affirming uh, those sorts of things. And and so then he he actually shared with me a, a blog article that he had written about the topic of sin. He had he had written this article essentially describing his view of what sin is because he believes that. Uh, and this is a so the guy who wrote the article, his name is Matt Nightingale. I don't feel bad sharing his name because, you know, it's a public blog that he has written. He is obviously uh, he stands behind these words. They are up on his own website. Um, and so I have I don't feel bad sharing his name. Uh, the, that's the whole point of him having a public blog is that people would hear about it and read it. Um, and so this guy, he is a uh, gay pastor at a church. I put squ scare quotes around that because uh, I don't think a church that has uh, gay pastors is uh, a church. Uh, not in the biblical sense, at least. Um, so uh, he and I were going back and forth a little bit, and then he sent me this article uh, in which he critiques kind of the the Christian, the classically Christian understanding of the doctrine of sin. 
and he then uh, puts forward kind of his own way of defining this idea of sin. And so, uh, you know, I read his article because I thought it would be, you know, one thing that I think you need to do if you're going to have discussions with people online is try to understand their positions. And so, you know, when a person sends you something that's manageable, of course, if somebody just sends, you know, a list of books, I'm probably not going to read all the different books (laughs) that they they send to me. But this guy sent, you know, a 13 or 1400 word article to me. I was like, okay, I can read that. Uh, So he sent this article over, so I decided to read it, and now I am responding to it. And lo and behold, uh, I do not think that it is uh, a trustworthy or biblically accurate uh, article. I think he misconstrues, uh, misconstrues, I said that funny, uh, the doctrine of sin, and so uh, this Today's segment is Dubious Doctrines. All right. So, um, I mentioned in the introduction that we're going to be looking at a new uh, word, or at least a, a word that might be new to your theological lexicon. And that word is hamartiology. And all that that means is just it it refers to the doctrine of sin. Um, It comes from one of the key uh, Greek words used in the New Testament to uh, that is translated as sin in our English New Testaments. Um, I don't speak or read Greek, so that is just a a little bit of background knowledge there. I'm not going to go too deep into it. Uh, But hamartiology just refers to our doctrine of sin, like asking questions like what is sin? Uh, what specific actions are sin? How would we uh, know what sin is in a given instance? So um, I do have on this episode, uh, even though I fail to do this sometimes, I do have a thesis uh, for the episode. So our thesis for this episode episode is a misunderstanding of sin debilitates the church in its mission. I I believe that if we as a church, as even as individual Christians, do not understand what sin is, then we cannot properly do what we have been called to do by God. Um, Sin, obviously, is is the impetus of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what brings about our need for salvation. It is our sinfulness, our willing sin and rebellion against God. And so uh, we need to understand sin because it sort of is, you know, every you you, you may have heard uh, about story structure in your, um, you know, growing up, going in your like literature classes or your, uh, you know, just various reading and writing classes that you've taken. Uh, You hear about this idea of the inciting incident. It is the thing at the beginning of a story that kind of kicks off the action. Well, sin uh, is, uh, at least from the human perspective, sin is the inciting incident to the whole gospel uh, story. The whole gospel narrative uh, sin is what brings that or, or begins that process. Of course, we understand sin begins in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve sinning by eating the apple. Uh, or, well, I don't I don't know why I said apple. Some people think it was a pomegranate. I have no idea. Some sort of fruit on a tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so uh, sin 
is what begins this whole uh, the whole gospel story. And so I think we it is vitally important that we understand what sin is just because it is the the inciting incident of the gospel. But then also, of course, if we want to be holy ourselves, uh, like on a practical daily basis sort of sense, well, then we need to understand what sin is, because sin is what we are striving to uh, avoid. We are striving to rid ourselves of sin. We are trying to put to death the sin that dwells within us so that we can honor God, our Father, Christ, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit who is dwelling within us. So we want to know what is sin. Uh, it's hard to avoid something if you cannot recognize it. And and therefore, it's very important. And so, uh, but I think, and this article, I think, will substantiate this claim. I think that today there are large uh, misconceptions around the idea of sin and and uh, badly formed definitions around this idea of sin. And I think that this article that we're going to uh, look at in this episode uh, demonstrates some of these. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the article. I'm not going to read the entire thing to you, but there is a link in the show notes. If you want to read the whole thing, I would encourage you. Uh, I, of course, I will strive not to misrepresent uh, what Mr. Matt Nightingale says um, in his article, but if you want to proof check me and make sure that I'm not, you know, misrepresenting him, you can read the entire article. There is a link in the show notes. Um, it might look funny on my screen when I show it to you because I import it as a PDF in order to uh, bold certain things that I, I want to look at more closely as we go through it. So, uh, but I promise I didn't delete any text. I didn't edit the text. Um, all I did was bring it into my computer as a PDF. So, uh, hopefully you trust that, that I didn't mess with it in any way, but you can check it by, uh, following the link to his blog and reading it there. If you would like to also, if you're just listening to the podcast rather than watching, that is a good way to track along um, all the parts that I'm going to read. I will read in order, but I will be kind of jumping forward at a few spots. Um, so let me jump over to the article here. i uh, got to set up my screen correctly. There we go. OK, so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, read through just the first few paragraphs of the article. So you can kind of he, he sets the scene of, of sort of what he wants to address. And so I think it's useful to to read this first portion and then we'll kind of pause. I'm going to address some stuff and then we'll read a couple more spots as we go through the article. As I mentioned, it's not very long. I've got it at very large font size and it's only six pages. So not a very long article if you want to take the time to read it. But let me read to you the first four paragraphs beginning now. I've been thinking a lot about the fundamentalist evangelical understanding of sin. I remember spending a lot of time and energy trying to figure out whether something was or was not a sin. It was never about the consequences or impact of a behavior. It was about its category. It was about lists of sins and not sins in the Bible. Was drinking a sin? Oh, hold on. Pause. Uh, sorry if you're watching this video uh, or just listening. I'm going to read a little bit more of this paragraph here, and he does mention a few things that you might consider graphic. Uh, and so if you have children around or if you just are not interested in that, then you can skip forward uh, a bit. But I'm going to read it just so we can understand where he's coming from. So he, he continues. Uh, 
I'll read the last sentence of the paragraph I just read uh, and then go from there. It was a, it was about a list of sins and not sins in the Bible. Was drinking a sin? What about underage drinking? What about getting tipsy? What about getting drunk? Was thinking about sex a sin? Getting an erection while thinking about sex? How about masturbation? Could one masturbate without sinning if it was a purely physical act not accompanied by sinful thoughts? I saw someone on Twitter today talking about whether or not it was a sin to vote for Biden or, or to vote for Trump or Biden. He wasn't talking about the impact or consequences in this world here and now, but about the spiritual impact for the individuals who cast those votes. The divorce or this divorce of sin from its real world impact, this spiritualization of sin that turns it into a between me and God issue is so significant. I'm trying to find words to express why I think this is so important. So uh, that is how he, he introduces this topic of, of sin. And um, there are a few things that I, I kind of want to address as we move forward with it. But um, the first one is he, he mentions and he kind of laments this idea that he sees as uh, divorcing our understanding of sin from, from this idea that he puts forward of, of real world impact. So let me uh, find that spot again. I'll, I'll read it. It's this last uh, little paragraph or sentence here. Um, he says, this divorce of sin, in scare quotes, from its real world impact, this spiritualization of sin that turns it into a between me and God issue is so significant. So he seems to be now he doesn't like come out right out and say it here, uh, but he, he seems to be lamenting this this way that apparently fundamentalists or evangelicals have thought about sin in the past, which, according to Mr. Nightingale, uh, divorces sin from its real world impact. So so his idea that, that he is uh, apparently promoting is that uh, sin ought to be understood uh, or, or categorized, defined by its real-world impact. And therefore, if something has a, a negative impact, then that should be called sin, a human action. You know, if a human action has negative impact on yourself or others, it should be called sin. And if it has positive impact, then it ought not to be called sin. And so his problem is with the evangelical understanding of sin, which is apparently, in his view, divorced from real world impact. And so he has a quote just a little bit farther down the page um, where I think he spells this out a little bit more clearly. So let me read that quote for you. Uh, it says this, I see things so differently now. I could be wrong. I'm the first to admit that. Uh, but it seems to me that they have it exactly backwards. The they there being uh, evangelicals or fundamentalists. He goes on, he says, it seems to me that things are categorized as sins in the Bible precisely because, in all caps, of their real world impact or consequences. Stealing, infidelity, murder, rape, oppression of the other, lying, these are obviously sinful. God speaks against these things and calls us to live free of them, not because if we sin, we are somehow stained or cut off from God, but because they literally hurt us 
and others. So you can see here, um, he, he puts forward a, a way of understanding sin that I would argue is different than the way that the Bible speaks of sin. And so um, we're going to look kind of at, at the way that he defines sin. And then towards the end of this episode, we're going to look at um, the way that scripture defines sin or the way that scripture talks about sin. But we'll get there uh, momentarily. First, I want to talk about the way that uh, I, this the, the new way that Mr. Nightingale uh, argues that we should define sin. Um, and you, you can see the, the title that I've given this episode is what is sin? Baby, don't hurt me. You're familiar uh, with the song. If you've ever seen the terrible movie night at the Roxbury, you are very familiar with, with the song. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me no more. Uh, well, uh, it seems to me that, that Mr. Nightingale's definition of sin or, or the way that he would define whether or not something is a sin is based on whether or not it hurts someone else. So he says, it seems to me that these things are categorized as sins in the Bible precisely because of their real world uh, impact or consequences. Uh, he, he goes on at the end of the paragraph, he says uh, that sin is is sin because it literally hurts us and others. And so uh, this this new way of defining sin that he is putting forward, I would like to uh, call ethical anthropocentrism, ethical anthropocentrism and uh, anthropocentrism is essentially just a word that means uh, centered around humanity. So so this is an, a, a, an ethical system that is centered around mankind. It, it makes sin all about our own well-being. And I would argue that it is a, a misconstrual of our well-being. I would argue that whatever God says is good and right for us, uh, whatever says whatever God says is evil is bad for us. And whatever God says is good is good for us. But. Mr. Nightingale seems to uh, categorize or define sin by making it about what is harmful or not harmful to us. Now, you'll see as we move towards the end of the podcast that um, the way that Scripture has defined sin for us is that which is um, against or that which is in opposition to the character of God. So, so we can see that in, in the classical Christian understanding of sin, it is God's character that defines whether or not something is sinful. But here in Mr. Nightingale's uh, definition of sin, it is how it affects other human beings and ourselves that defines whether or not something is um, sinful. And, and the problem there is that this this makes it a completely subjective category because what he does is he he allows people to then define what hurts them or what doesn't hurt them and the issue is that god knows us better than we know us god knows what is good for us better than we know what is good for us i think it is so useful uh and helpful that one of the key ways that god is described in scripture over and over and over is father God is our 
father. Well, what is true of fathers if they are good, godly fathers? Uh, Well, what is true of them is that they are given authority over their children to raise them and to do what is best for them. And and what you know to be true if you've watched children or if you've had children is that very often children do not know what is best for them. Children do not know what is harmful for them, you know. Uh, so you take a kid to the doctor and they have to get some sort of procedure that is unpleasant. Maybe it's a like for me growing up, I had to get allergy shots. And the way that allergy shots work is it's it's nearly torture. Uh, luckily I don't really have a big problem with needles. Uh, but the way that allergy shots work is you begin uh, at a certain dosage and, and it's a low dosage and you go get a shot two times a week. And then once you get used to that and your reaction is, is manageable when you get those shots, then, uh, they bump your dosage up a little bit and bump you down to once a week shots. And then it goes down after that to uh, once every two week shots and then once a month shots. And then they bump the dosage up a bunch and you go back or they, they, yes, they bump it up a little bit more and you go back down to twice a week. And so I got shots like that in that sort of sequence over and over and over for uh, multiple years of my life growing up. And, uh, the, the reality is that children, when they experience things like that, that are truly for their own good, but it is painful. It it seems in the moment to be harmful. They, they do not recognize what is good for them. They would rather stop those entirely, but luckily or not luckily by the providence of God, uh, I am now less allergic to a variety of things because my mom and dad knew that that painful moment in the the present was truly what was good for me. And the problem with with this sort of anthropocentric definition of sin that Mr. Nightingale puts forward is that it allows mankind to be the arbiter of what is harmful or not harmful for us. And so uh, as a, a gay man, of course, Mr. Uh, Nightingale's his, his way of thinking would say, look, it is harmful to tell a gay person to repent because uh, in his mindset, they are born that way. And that is, you know, how they were created. And, and therefore, to tell them to repent of their homosexuality is uh, a, an assault And it is oppressive against who and what they are. And so he would categorize that as harmful. And so he would say it it is actually a sin to call homosexuals to repent because it is harmful against them to do so. Uh, And so we can see that that this sort of definition of harmful or, or using harm as the determining factor in what is or is not sinful, uh, it, 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 very quickly veers off from the biblical understanding of what is or is not sin. So uh, that is, I think, a very important thing to notice here as we try to understand. And and, and the reason I, I, you know, because I don't think most Christians are gay, you know, pastors who attend churches that affirm LGBTQ, like that's not the average Christian. But I do think that that sort of definition of sin is becoming more and more common 
because we're we're disconnecting ourselves more and more uh, from the uh, Christian worldview and from the biblical understanding of righteousness. And, and therefore, uh, we have to then define sin somehow because sin is just a category in the Bible you can't escape from. Like, only the most absurdly liberal people can deny the category of sin. So anybody who calls themselves a Christian, for the most part, has to have some sort of category for sin. And as we disengage from the biblical worldview, we have to then define sin in some other way. And this, I would argue, is sort of just the the human default. Um, this is, uh, like, I, I would argue, probably the the most common ethical system that exists today. That is um, most widespread among most people is uh, utilitarianism. And utilitarianism is an ethical system that essentially says uh, it, it determines morality by asking what causes the most good for the most people. And of course, uh, it has no no uh, objective standard for determining what is good. So it, it's kind of a self-defeating system, but people tend to just uh, uh, ignore that aspect of it, and they tend to form their moral or ethical system based on that question of what causes the most good for the most people. And this is essentially just the the Christian spin on that sort of idea where, well, something is sin if it if it is not good for other people or for myself. And so uh, I think that we, we have to understand and be able to biblically refute this way of thinking. And so we're going to get to some of that biblical refutation here in a moment. But let's move forward a little bit because uh Nightingale, I think, is going to kind of show his cards here in this next quote that I'm going to show you, where I think he is going to directly contradict Jesus himself. So let's move forward. Quote is a little bit further down. If you're just reading the the article itself from the Internet, uh, then it's the it's a few paragraphs down. It begins with the, the phrase, the more I experience life, if you'd like to read along. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, it's on the screen. So you're welcome. Uh, he goes on and he says this. The more I experience life, the longer I walk with God, the more I understand what Jesus was talking about in Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So he finishes the, the biblical quote there, and then uh, Nightingale goes on, and he says this, I really believe Jesus was saying not to worry about all those rules and regulations, all those laws, all those lists of sins. You think about two things, love God and love other people. If you let those or these two principles guide your life, everything else will take care of itself. In that in that quote that we just read to uh, from Mr. Nightingale's article, I think he kind of shows his hand because he he sort of verbally says what I think conservative Christians have been accusing liberal Christians of for a long time, where 
you know, he, he literally says, I really believe Jesus was saying not to worry about all those rules and regulations, all those laws, all those lists of sins. So like conservative Christians for a long time have just been saying like, look, uh, liberal Christians are essentially just rejecting everything that the Bible says about sin and minimizing it just to love God and love people. And then uh, that's exactly what he says here. He's like, yes, that's exactly what we should do. And and the problem with that is Jesus here was not trying to, in any sense, nullify, uh, you know, the rest of the rest of the laws and the rest of uh, scripture when he summarized it. So so the uh, the the thing to notice about that passage that he quotes, Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40, is that Jesus is responding to a question here. He, he is not, um, you know, he's not replacing the law with a new commandment. But what is the question that that he is responding to? So uh, uh, somebody comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? So, so he's not saying teacher, now that you've put away the law, now that you've nullified the law, what should we do instead? No, the answer the, the, or the question that Jesus is answering is what is the great commandment in the law? So Jesus, he is not only not putting away the law, he is affirming the validity, the validity and the applicability of the law. And you can see that towards the end of that quote, he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus is not nullifying the law. He's summarizing the law. Jesus answer here. He he does not in any way indicate that the rest of the law is obsolete. Instead, he's simply summarizing the rest of the law in these two commandments. He says the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So those two commands, they they are the summary of the Old Testament law, but they do not nullify or abrogate the Old Testament law. And Jesus makes this so clear. And I think this is where you can sort of start to see how unbiblical the the worldview is uh, and the biblical interpretation is of a guy like Matt Nightingale uh, when you read what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 18 to 19. Uh, Jesus is speaking. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? Have heaven and earth passed away? Well, no, obviously not, because we're still here talking. You're listening to a podcast. Uh, Heaven and earth have not passed away. Well, what does Jesus say? Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, isn't that precisely what Matt Nightingale is doing here? So so he says, uh, I really believe Jesus was saying not to worry about all those rules and regulations. Jesus says Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So Nightingale 
is is looking back at the law, looking back at the commandments and saying, look, those are, you know, don't worry about those. Jesus is saying, you know, we don't have to don't worry about the rules and regulations. Jesus says, hey, the rules and regulations, those are good. You should still obey those, even though you don't obey those for your justification, but you do obey those because they are uh, exemplary of the character of God. And so if you want to be like God, if you want to be like Jesus, well, then a great way to do that is to understand the law and to keep it because it is uh, it is a an a verbal explanation of the character of God. But I think there is a common sort of confusion around this whole topic, and we could summarize it uh, or characterize it by this quote. Essentially, this is what people say. They say, well, didn't Jesus completely fulfill the law? And thus, aren't we under grace instead of law? Hasn't the law passed away? And my response to that would be, well, I, I gladly confirm that the law as a means for man to justify himself is completely useless. Nobody can justify himself by keeping the law. That is not the purpose for which the law was given to us. Nobody can earn entry into the kingdom by obedience to the law. But here's the thing. That is not what Matt Nightingale is talking about. Matt Nightingale isn't saying, look, you can, you know, enter into a relationship with God by obeying the law. And he so he that's not the idea that he's refuting. Matt Nightingale is talking about interpersonal ethics. You know, that's how he characterizes sin. He's, he says, sin, look, sin is all about not hurting others or not hurting yourself. And so uh, Matt Nightingale is saying, look, in terms of not hurting others and not hurting ourselves, we don't need to worry about the law, but instead we need to worry about Jesus' command to love God and to love people. But the law was was specifically given for our ethical uh, life, for our moral life. And so what we what we have to understand is that the law is good and the law is what helps us to live a life that honors God and and loves other people well. And so I thought it would be useful for us for a few minutes um, to just talk about the the law, because um, I think that there is a lot of confusion around the what the law is, how the law ought to function in the life of a Christian. And there um, classically, we've understood that there are three um, key uses for the law. And so I'm going to um, put them up on screen. I've got them um, here. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can see these as we uh, go along. But there are three uh, uses of the law. And if I remember, I'll try to um, put an article in the show notes that helps to explain this. Um, but the first use of the law, the law of God, God's commandments uh, that we read throughout the Old Testament, the first use for the law um, and again, none of these uses are about justifying you in the sight of God. They're all about, uh, well, I'll walk through them and you will see what they are all about. The first use of the law is as a mirror that reveals the perfect righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. So the law reveals what is sin. 
So we're talking about hamartiology, we're talking about sin. Well, the law is the way that we know what sin is because it, it, it tells us verbally, it tells us with words what is sinful by, uh, by saying that certain things are out of bounds and, say, and commanding us to do other things. So we see Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what does Paul say here? He says, first, of course, we recognize nobody is going to be justified in the sight of God by obeying the law. But what does the law do? Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, so it is the law that reveals what is sin. So the law is Necessary. The law is good and useful for Christians because it reveals to us what is sin and what is good. So that is the first use of the law. It reveals the righteousness of God because the law, we understand, is uh, a, a it reveals the character of God by uh, the written code showing us what is right and what is wrong. And then it reveals the sinfulness of man in that when we differ from or contradict that law, it shows that we are sinning. So then that's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is to restrain evil in the world. So the law does not change hearts, but the law of God is meant to discourage evil by naming it and setting certain punishments for the transgression of the law. And so uh, we understand that the, the law of God was given to mankind graciously as a way of restraining evil in the world, because when a government is righteous, it punishes people for breaking the law of God. This is a great argument for why the law ought to be the law of God ought to be the governing law in every single nation. Why? Well, because it is the duty of every single nation, the government of every single nation to punish the evildoer. Well, if you go back to the first use of the law, how do we know what is evil? By the law of God. And so if the law of God is what reveals what is evil, then the governments ought to use the law of God in order to uh, recognize and to punish transgression. And, and so the law is meant to restrain evil by naming and then setting certain punishments for uh, wickedness or evil. So that is the second use of the law. The third use of the law is to guide Christians in holiness. So, so for the individual Christian, uh, the law is an ethical guide. It shows us what is good, what is evil. And, and uh, the way that I like to put it is that the law is Christ's holiness in didactic form. So we understand that Jesus, when he came to the earth, what did he do? He, he kept the law perfectly in a way that we could not. And because he kept the law perfectly, he earned eternal life with regard to the law. But then what did he do? He went to the cross and died a sinner's death and, and the death that you and I deserved. And then he transferred to all of his people, his perfect righteousness. 
he became uh, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he gives us his righteousness, which is defined as righteousness because he kept the law of God. And then he he gave us that righteousness and he took on our sinfulness. And so the law uh, is Christ's holiness, his life, essentially, in didactic or uh, sort of verbal form. The the law is the character of Christ. And so if Christians, you know, we have this the, the famous old thing from the 90s. What was it? Uh, what would Jesus do? Well, if you want an answer to that question, the, the answer is the law. Whatever the law says, that's what Jesus would do. Jesus kept the law perfectly. That was the standard to which Jesus attained in order to merit our salvation. So uh, the law guides Christians in holiness because the law is simply the character of Christ set down in words. So we understand if if you understand the law in that way, then you see that the law is still vitally necessary for the ethical life of every single Christian. We 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 need the law because the, the Old Testament law is essentially the answer to the question, how do I love God and people? You know, Mr. Nightingale says that that we you know, the all we need to worry about is loving God and loving people. Well, <laughs> the law is the answer to the question, how? How do I love God and how do I love people? Like, even if you just look at the, the Ten Commandments, you can see that there we, we've broken it down into the first table and the second table of the Ten Commandments. And the first set or the first group are about how do you love God? And then the second set or group is about how do you love people? So if you want more detail uh, on how do we love God and how do we love people? Where do you go? You go to the law of God. So so while Mr. Nightingale seems to, or he, he wants to come across as though he's simplifying the the question of ethics by, by simply saying, look, love God and love other people, what he's actually doing is he is removing the gracious specificity that God has given us in his law. And what he does is he leaves us kind of floundering and trying to come up with our own definitions in place of the ones that God has actually already given us. God has told us what it means to love him and to love others. And the way that he reveals that is in his perfect law. And so if we want to love God and love others, we we should look to God's perfect law in order to uh, do that. So we've talked about the law. We've talked about how important the law is. The fact that the law is what defines sin and what I was going to do. And I think I might uh, actually pause there. Um, What I was going to do is jump forward to um, kind of a a discussion of um, Lewis Burkhoff's because Lewis Burkhoff and his systematic theology, he has a great, it's like three pages, but he really helps to break down what does the Bible say about sin. And I really want to um, talk about that and and do it justice. And so we're coming up on an hour here uh, of episode. And so what I think I'll do is I think I'll cut it there. And then in the upcoming week, um, I will 
walk through those it's six points essentially that Burkhoff gives to to discuss sin and so I think I'll I'll cut it here and then in the next episode we will go on and we will continue to talk about uh what sin is uh kind of in response to uh this article by Matt Nightingale so thank you for tuning in um grateful for you tuning in if I if I have to give you kind of one note or idea as we close the episode is simply that as a Christian, you have no right to define sin in any other way than the way that God defines it. And the way that God has determined to define sin for us is by giving us his law. And so if you want to know what is sin, you cannot simplify it uh, so much that you cut out what God himself has said to us. And I fear that that is what Mr. Nightingale does in this article he simplifies it and he seeks to do so using the very words of christ but the problem is that the words of christ uh to love god with all our heart soul mind uh, heart soul and mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves that is not meant to set aside the law of god that is meant to summarize and point us back to the law of god and so if you want to love others and love God, which I would I would totally agree. If you perfectly love God and love others, you would be sinless. So I agree that that is the goal. But the problem is that apart from God's revelation, God showing us how we do that in the law, we cannot understand it. And and instead, uh, like I said, uh, what Nightingale does here is I think he kind of removes the the gracious specificity of God's law. We should be so grateful that God gave us books and books and books in the Old Testament defining his law and what what righteousness is and what it means to be holy. We should be grateful for that and we shouldn't seek to set it aside for the supposed simplicity of love God and love people. But instead, we should we should look to it sort of as the the expansive commentary on that command to love God and love people. Do you want to know how to love God and love people? Well, go to the law of God, because that is where it is revealed. So that's where I'll cut it today. And in the next episode, I'm going to look at uh, Lewis Burkhoff, his systematic theology, uh, where he describes the uh, the the biblical picture of what sin is. So thank you for tuning in. Really grateful for you. Uh, I hope that you have a great week and you are fantastic and I love you. Mm -hmm.